Well, the the bartending manuals tend to start in the in the 1800s, and really the first one for professional bartenders that we know about comes around 1862, and that has basically the bartender's view of how you would put together drinks rather than a um, someone making punch for parties, for example. So the the cocktails from there, there's a whole genre of of writing of rediscovery of what was in those recipes and trying to figure out what the heck they were thinking a lot of the time and it turns out a lot of it has to do with that the spirits that we drink today were not exactly like the spirits in the middle of the 1800s and that's uh taken up a lot of our time actually in the past uh, 10 or 15 years people just sort of figuring out before prohibition what was going on and uh when we started putting into play the the older ingredients things made a lot more sense than they looked like just trying every to to use old recipes with modern ingredients welcome to pure spectrum where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners experience what it's like practicing medicine on the international space station operating on an nfl super bowl quarterback treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. It's holiday season and New Year's is just a few days away. What better time to take a fun-filled tour through the medicinal history of alcohol? And today's guest is the perfect guide. Camper English is a journalist, author, and recognized expert in the world of cocktails and spirits. A member of the United States Bartenders Guild, Camper is also an innovator, having invented something called directional freezing. This is a technique that makes perfectly clear ice and it's used in bars around the world. His recent book, Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits, and Cocktails is on tap for today's conversation. We hope you enjoy, and from Keith and I, happy holidays and happy new year to all of you out there. We look forward to seeing you back here in 2023 for some more great episodes. With that said, let's get started. Camper, welcome to the show. Thanks for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Really enjoyed this book. Uh, It's a whole world I didn't know anything about, so um, we're going to get into all sorts of things today, but normally I don't do this where tell me about yourself kind of thing, but I have to know how you got into this and how you stumbled on this topic. So say you and I are sitting next to each other on an airplane and I say, Camper, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? I just say, I write about drinks and and then there are usually follow-up questions (laughs) as soon as I say that. So I've been a a cocktails and spirits uh, journalist for more than 15 years now. It's all I do is uh, research drinks and write about drinks and occasionally drink drinks um, as an occupational hazard. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a drinks writer and I wasn't really focused all that much on history uh, traditionally because other people have been doing a great job with that, but more sort of like science of drinks and trends in drinks and cocktails and stuff like that. And I just sort of stumbled upon a topic that was not as well explored as other historical drink topics. So humans, we we have a long relationship with alcohol, perhaps longer than we're really aware as far as looking at scholarly evidence or archaeology evidence. But if I were to ask you how far, and again, I'm not holding this to you because I know there's a lot of guesses, like maybe fermented fruit fell on the ground and people found that. But 
In your opinion, doing this research, how far back do you think this relationship goes? When did we first encounter alcohol and what's the earliest that we, that we think we know of right now? Well, I think that it's when people settle down, when people started writing, they wrote about how to make beer. So uh, to before written history, people were consuming alcohol in one way or another. Uh, it, you know, there's a natural process when fruit drops off a tree and starts fermenting, people might eat it and think it tastes good. And uh, eventually people started making alcohol on purpose and documented that from its beginning days. How early do you think that is, though? It, it, you know, you talked about the Egyptians, you talked about even drinking beer for laborers. I mean, yeah, I think we're looking at uh, 10 to 15,000 years BC is the earliest documented evidence um, so far. It's possible that there's older because there's a new field of archaeology of looking at um, drinking vessels and doing analysis on them and finding much older fermented beverages uh, residue from from them in tombs and things like that. All right. So I'm going to read this quote from your book. Um, I think it's funny because gosh, every other week you're going to see some article today, whether red wine's good for you, how many drinks per day. And so let me just read this one. So quote, there is no topic more difficult to handle or more full of detail, seeing that it is hard to say whether wine does good for people rather than harming them. And this is the Roman scholar, uh, Pliny the Elder, and this is, God, just the first century. So he was frustrated that people keep asking him this. And now we're talking 2000 years later, we're still trying to figure this one out. And I read this because this isn't going to be our normal episode where we're going to say, Camper, give me some some research on this. How many glasses of red wine? We're, we're going to have fun today. and But we're also going to see how long the process is as far as ex experimentation, trying new things. And there's reasons people did this. Um, take us back, like, as early, you know, we look back at Egypt. They're talking about drinking beer when they're building tombs and building the pyramids. It's hard for us to imagine that. I, I can't even drink a beer in the middle of the afternoon and not get sleepy today. <laughs> this, this may not be the same kind of beer we're thinking about, the same relationship with alcohol, especially for us Americans. Kind of describe that to us. What, what did this look like that we, as far as we know? Well, we have to think about sanitation or the lack thereof of the water supply in any civilization of old. And you really wouldn't want to be drinking out of the, the main water supply, which would be the, the river or whatever body of water, unless that was an underground spring. Those tend to be um, more in, in the country. And so people drank beer or they drank wine, depending on what was locally available instead of water. Because in the process of making beer, you boil it typically. And also at the point in time at which hops came into the equation, those are antimicrobial and those help not only preserve the beer, but also kill some of the nasty stuff that can grow in it. And uh, wine tends to be a little bit higher in alcohol than beer. And it's also naturally antimicrobial. And people just weren't drinking water. They were drinking beer instead. It was probably much lower in ABV and uh, probably much clumpier um, because <laughs> it was just yeast fermenting on grains. And then there are pictures dating back to ancient times of people with long straws inserted into shared vessels of beers. And those straws were there to get beneath the, the crusty layer on top into the bowl of beer. 
So really a lot of the use of beer and wine in early civilizations and in medicine in those civilizations comes from the fact that you just weren't using water, most likely. Did, do you think that the um, Egyptians or the ancients had a sense that the water was bad and, and that's why they were drinking? Or was it because did they see, well, if people drink the water, they're, they're not working, they're sicker. So let's try this instead. Was this on purpose or was it just a good happenstance? Well, we know that they didn't understand microorganisms, right, right. Um, and that would be the problem of the water. But going back to the time of the ancient Greeks, they commented in different books about whether water was going to be better or worse for you, the type of water. So they knew uh, that, there, for example, stagnant water of ponds and swamps was generally the least healthy water. And they had some, not all together sensible beliefs about where good water did come from. But a lot of times it was uh, on track with what we know today. Like if it's coming down from a mountain spring, it might be more healthy than swamp water, for example, or that rainwater might generally be better for you than water from a lake, for example. So there were definitely, there's some knowledge of it. And perhaps the knowledge was people were just thinking about, well, if you get water from a swamp, that water is bad water and not like because it has microorganisms in it. Okay. And uh, before we get off the uh, the topic of what the beer was like, and I'm moving way ahead, later on you talk about how nowadays people are trying to reestablish the old drinks, sometimes with some problems. They're bringing back some things we don't necessarily want. Is there anybody out there, do you know, who's who's experimenting, trying to make these crusty beers? Is there anyone who, who says this is what the Egyptians drank and is trying to serve that up to people? Oh, absolutely. There have been some in the past, let's say, 10 years or so, a lot of experiments being done on taking ancient beer recipes and recreating them. And some of the more creative brewers have been doing those largely as an experiment to see what they were like. I don't know if they're leaving all the sediment in as people <laughs> did in ancient Egypt, but they were certainly following the the grain recipes of, of old. Have you tried any? I have not. I have not. That's interesting. I, I, well, I was going to jump in this question later on, but let me throw it in right now because we'll bounce all over the place. But you you list a lot of bartending manuals, but like from the 1700s and 1800s. And I'm assuming, hell, I'm looking at all those books right behind you. I'm sure there might be a few in there or some PDFs somewhere. But have you found, looking at some of these old texts, these old bartending manuals, maybe some hidden gems or things that are just so far different from today, but uh, that are still good? I mean, what, what do you see in these things? Well, the, the bartending manuals tend to start in the in the 1800s. And really, the first one for professional bartenders that we know about comes around 1862. And that has basically the bartender's view of how you would put together drinks rather than a um, someone making punch for parties, for example. And in those, we find certainly the palate has changed, that people always preferred uh, sweeter drinks in, in older days. And that's been, I mean, even today, people prefer drinks far drier than in the 1990s. And uh, uh, this, those, I think, go in waves a bit. But in general, we we have less of a sweet tooth than we have at any time in history, I think. So the, the cocktails from there, there's a whole genre of, of writing, of rediscovery of what was in those recipes and trying to figure out what the heck they were thinking a lot of the time. And it turns out a lot of it has to do with that the spirits that we drink today were not 
exactly like the spirits in the middle of the 1800s. For example, a lot of the gin that was being consumed then was uh, old Tom gin, which is a sweetened and sometimes lightly aged style of gin, or it was Geneva, uh, which is a, a, a Dutch predecessor to gin that is more like an unaged malty whiskey than it is the crisp uh, juniper citrusy gin of today. So when we try to take a modern gin and use it in an old recipe, sometimes those taste absolutely disgusting. And it took a, a lot of people thinking really hard about it to figure out, well, what was the gin like at the time that this recipe was written? and uh, the other ingredients as well, and putting those together again. And that's uh, taken up a lot of our time, actually, in the past uh, 10 or 15 years, people just sort of figuring out before prohibition, what was going on. And uh, when we started putting into play the, the older ingredients, things made a lot more sense than they look like just trying every, to, to use old recipes with modern ingredients. Before I forget, if we jump back, let's, let's look at Rome. And we're talking about a long time period, obviously, but did was the drink, the consumption, was there a difference between the ruling classes and commoners? Did they, one prefer the other? Uh, did even wealthy people have access to better water? What do we know about that? Well, we know when they drank um, wine, certainly the, the richer people drank better wine, but also they had better documentation. And so it looks like everyone drank the finest wines and, and there was an understanding of vintages and different vineyards. And there were guides to what would be the best wine or which wines aged longest. And in terms of medicine, <clears throat> which were supposedly more or less healthy for you. And so we can see uh, clues about those understandings. And as far as other beverages go, uh, there were uh, like basically spoiled wine vinegars that the more laboring classes would be drinking. I don't think I had mentioned those in, in the book, uh, if at all, but uh, there was like spoiled, spoiled wine, maybe with water diluted to it. And that vinegar drinks are actually quite refreshing. And for people who work in, in the sun and these have a long tradition of uh, laborers outdoor who drink vinegar-based drinks. And uh, so that we, we know goes back at least into the Greek and Roman times. Uh, and water, it turns out throughout history, we keep finding examples of people kind of talking smack about those who had to drink water. They're like, oh, he's so poor, he drinks water. Or uh, <laughs> that guy, uh, he's unmarried, therefore he has to drink water because a lot of times and places in history, it was the, the woman's duty in the home to make beer and uh, even distilled beverages at certain points. So if someone was a water drinker, that was usually an insult. So I just found this. This, this is another quote, um, and um, I'm going to butcher his name because I... This is uh, Brunchwig, I think. This is from 1450 to 1512, somewhere toward, more towards 1512 when he would have written this. But it's a quote, for the common people that dwell far away from medicines and physicians, and for them uh, that may not be able to pay for costly medicines, this is, this is what's an option, you know, is not only alcohol, but also using different potions and concoctions as medicine. And, of course, as we've learned actually in our past 
podcast recently about the history of surgery, you might be better off being far away from physicians. That <laughs> wasn't always safe, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But but it's true. I mean, very few people had access to physicians. Even those who did, it, it could be a pretty pretty scary interaction. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about uh, Greek medicine and how a lot of it had to do with if you know the person's personality type, if they were a phlegmatic person or um, or a uh, had a warm personality or a wet personality, then physicians would prescribe medicines for them without ever having seen the patient. And that was very common. Or they would just analyze, say, the urine of the patient without having to see the patient and then come up with a prescription, which usually had to do with some sort of food intake. Like, oh, if you are phlegmatic, then you must eat warm, dry foods like uh, mint and ginger or something like that. Or there was a lot of purging of fluids, so uh, bleeding and sweating and uh, and other <laughs> sorts of excretion <laughs> to get out uh, liquids to the system. And that was all this wild medicine that um, a lot of those weren't so bad, except for the bleeding. It's obviously not always great for the patient, <laughs> but uh, at least you would uh, be prescribed certain types of food to eat for a while. And that all changed as we got towards 1500 and new types of mineral-based medicines came into play, which turned out to be maybe not necessarily all that much better for you, but less bad for you. <laughs> Just the fact that you survived means it worked, even though it may not have done anything. Right. I'm curious about this because we, we've talked about this before, like Aristotle and Galen, the sticking power of some of these beliefs where they, they just held them in so high regard, nobody questioned it. Um, to me, I get it. Like if you mix some wine with water or just drink wine, you're not getting sick. Even if you don't understand germ theory, and of course they didn't, it's working, right? But some of these things that you came up with, one was, I forget where it was, maybe you can tell the story about soaking a, a dead body in honey and leaving it there for a hundred years and, and then using that as, as medicine. I, I, to me, and I know it's hard to criticize people. You shouldn't criticize people in the past for not understanding the scientific method. I mean, that's, that's to me, that's a fallacy, but I get why alcohol had tangible benefits and you could see it, even if it just made you feel better, right? Tasted good. But some of these other things, to me, I, I don't understand how, they even had sticking power or how people, have you ever thought about that question? Why there was so much of this experimentation, just putting things together and why it, it went on for so long? Yeah. Some of the stuff makes sense in the context of the time or in context of the, the science and medicine of the time. And a lot of that for me was a new learning experience in researching the book, but a lot of it just seems to come from, nowhere. One thing that I had to sort of apply modern logic to to figure out was scurvy and why all the cures for scurvy looked so weird. Um, uh, horseradish was a big one, sauerkraut. When carbon, artificial carbonation was invented, they gave the person who invented it a major scientific prize and said, congratulations, you've cured scurvy, even though they hadn't even tried it yet. And uh, all of these cures, uh, it took a long time to figure out they're all acidic in some way. There was vinegar prescribed or malt wort that was supposed to ferment inside your stomach. And they thought of scurvy as a disease of uh, putrefaction, uh, that you're internally rotting. And 
only after thinking about it a long time, I'm like, okay, all of these things are preservation methods or uh, pickling methods or making vinegars that tend to preserve foods for longer. And if you were taking those internally, you'd be preserving your internal organs from rotting just how you might do that to your, your cabbage for sauerkraut, for example. So that was a, a case of trying to piece things together when there's no one that, that I had read saying like, oh, we give acidic things because that's going to stop putref putrefaction. It was because, well, it was the disease was believed to be caused or this is how it, what was happening in it. Therefore, the cure would be something that, that, that works in that way. And a lot of that was putting those puzzle pieces together. Now, the people eating mummified bodies and honey i don't i don't know what that comes from i uh there was a lot of people eating corpses throughout history and some of those are explainable and some of them are not and they're all of course don't work <laughs> yeah yeah i think there's one where if the person died accidentally but they were otherwise free of pathology as far as they could see they thought the body's still healthy and there's something to be gained from <laughs> it's disgusting but you know breaking down you know, the skin or hair or any, you know, organs into something that you can consume. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get it, but. <laughs> yeah, if you were going to eat your, your uh, mummified person, which was a specific type of medicine for a while, then you definitely didn't want, well, first you wanted a mummy from Egypt. That was first. Uh, then uh, pretty much the world ran out of mummies because they all got eaten. And then. It was a stranded person who died in the desert was your second choice of, of person to make medicine from and eat. And then there were a whole bunch of mummy counterfeiters who would try to make corpses look like they had come from uh, mummies. And uh, then it, uh, into the 1600s, we find in one of the most important books in distillation, still in 1650, we see recipes for using a, a, a corpse in medicine. And that was saying like, oh, well, take a young person who's died healthy and make the medicine from them because they wouldn't be sick and wouldn't be have diseases internally. You'd want someone fresh and healthy who was probably uh, executed for a crime. Uh, that's who you're going to get your, your medicine from and not, a, not an old man who died of natural causes. <laughs> God, what a loss to history, too. I mean, I'm sure Egyptologists <laughs> are just, just cringing every time they hear these stories of all the... Right. Mummies that are lost. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about the Middle Ages a little bit. Um, I think we should talk about it a lot. But first of all, what was the church's? Because we're going to talk about monks and monasteries, obviously. But what was the church's stance on alcohol? And I imagine it changed a little bit. But how did they influence that? And what did they think about it? Well, the church was really this the center of knowledge and information in in the Middle Ages, and there was no people had issues with drunkenness and this particularly became more important after distilled spirits were were created but people didn't have a, any problem with alcohol so long as someone was not you know what we would call today an alcoholic uh, who drank to excess all the time because still it was that you would drink wine or beer instead of water most of the time in the earliest sort of charters of monasteries, there were laws about that you should drink modestly for the monks because you were a monk. You were not supposed to drink to excess that the the 
the people not in the clergy would. And so we, we find some of those rules throughout time, but there wasn't like an alcohol is bad for, I mean, there still isn't in a lot of practicing religions. There's uh, There are stereotypes about the priest who drinks too much at the funerals and, and things like that. So the, the Middle Ages, the, the monasteries as the centers of learning, they were the centers of information about brewing and winemaking. And there's a lot of evidence to the viniculture of Europe being really dominated by the particular sects of, of uh, monasteries and of brewing. The process of sort of growing the size of the brewing operation so that it could be more industrialized is largely credited to monasteries. They would make beer for themselves, but also for the surrounding communities. And once things got to a certain level, the beer had to be preserved to last longer, and then hops come into the equation, and those help preserve the beer. And so a lot of that is is always credit to monasteries for monks and nuns. You have the um, monasteries developing these complex drinks, um, you know, the Benedictines and the Jägermeisters. I think that was monastery and all those. What, what was their thought process? I mean, you've got these elaborate um, recipes that these secretly guarded things with 400 um, uh, components and everything. What were they after? Is that is there? Do we have a sense of why the monastery was doing this or is just because they had time on their hands or they had the materials? Well, we see throughout history a lot of examples of really complicated recipes for medicines. And the early ones from the Greek and Roman days were these uh, theriac and mithridates, I think is how it's mm. pronounced. These, uh, they're anti-venom, anti-poison, and eventually they become sort of all-purpose medicine. And I believe that these uh, monastic liqueurs that came out of the Middle Ages kind of had to do with that. They were all in one sort of vitamins, <laughs> drinkable vitamins of the day. They were supposed to, perhaps if you could afford it, you would have a little bit every day to improve health, it was thought. Or uh, when you're particularly sick, you would might take more. And these liqueurs had everything thought to be healthy at the time in them, which includes one, the base alcohol, which at that point was distilled, and two, my, some sweeteners to soften the blow of these bitter herbs <laughs> that were often in them, things like wormwood and gentian and cinchona eventually. And then some nicer tasting spice, spices, but all spices at one point in history were used in as medicine. And uh, when we throw it all together, I think it's just like, let's try everything. Let's make an all purpose, you know, shampoo and conditioner of, of, the, <laughs> of the medicinal world. And you can have a little bit of that every day. And then the monasteries could sell it to the local populations or donate it because beneficial medicine was the only medicine of, of those days because the learned people were all in the monasteries. So we, out of that, we have a few surviving monastic liqueurs that have, in the case of chartreuse, which is probably the most famous, 130 ingredients uh, are cited in that formulation. And it's probably more drinkable and delicious today than it was in its original formulation. But the and remember, is that still secret with theirs? Absolutely. They don't disclose any of the ingredients. The only thing we know for sure is alcohol. And technically, we don't even know from what 
from what base material that alcohol was distilled. We know because it's a liqueur, it must have a sweetener in it. It could be honey, could be sugar. It's, it's probably some of each. And uh, we have an idea, a concept of what's in it, but they don't disclose any ingredients, at least to the public. They might have to to the, the TTB or the, the government bureau in order to have it on the market to, to prove that there's nothing poisonous in it. And it's probably measured that it doesn't have an excess of thujone or cinchona or these prohibited uh, or limited ingredients in it. But they don't tell us anything. <laughs> it's still very secret. Well, I guess early on it was it was a, a business protection, right? Like intellectual property. I mean, if it was just grape juice with a touch of salt or something, and anyone could make it, you know, what they don't have an edge on that market. So just the idea of making it complicated and difficult to reproduce, for sure, still still working today. Yeah, the complexity of it was a big selling point then, as then as it is now. Yeah, Colin and I were talking a little bit um, offline before you came on. How did they protect their secrets? I mean, uh, sure, it's a monastery, so it's sort of a closed system. But were there are there stories about spies? Are there stories about people being excommunicated or even punished because they've let secrets out? Hmm, I haven't heard too many stories in that direction. Usually it's more about counterfeiting and uh, people trying to say that they've made chartreuse, but they've made something like chartreuse, for example, mm -hmm. and selling those. And sometimes you visit distilleries that have been around for a long time, and they'll have a display case of all the fake products that tried to <laughs> uh, sort of steal the copyright and the, the labeling. There are a lot of herbal liqueurs that are, come in a red and a yellow version, just like chartreuse, and have a number of herbs just like chartreuse. And it's clear where their inspiration was sourced from these famous, the most famous of all. Uh, and Benedictine, it's uh, tied to uh, medicine is a little bit looser. There's, uh, there's a brand story, and the person I've quoted in the book is very... Um, he says, no, it definitely exists. This is a real thing. And so we've, I've taken him at his word there, but I definitely quoted him rather than um, said that I uh, am in full belief that it comes directly from the monastic recipe. I'm curious what, what you know about this, because Keith and I are also talking about this, like even Coca-Cola, you know, something that's produced on such a massive scale. And there has to be so many people involved, but there's still, I mean, some people think they know what Coke, Coke's formula is, but to keep something like this secret, is it just such a division of labor and compartmentalized you know, as far as people's, you know, uh, production? I mean, how, what do you know about how these things work? How do they keep it secret? Well, and I, I know in the case of chartreuse, it's only a few monks, it's either two or three, know the, the entire recipe. And they have herbs sent to the, the mother house monastery, and they mix them up together there in certain ratios. And there are stories of some places that produce complicated botanical liqueurs of ordering fake botanicals that they don't actually use in the recipe. So if someone uh, found their importation recipes that they wouldn't, still wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> okay, really, that makes sense. Really the trick in gin or these liqueurs or anything is that you might know all the ingredients, but you don't really know the quantities of each or the production method that some things are distilled, some things are infused, some things might be fermented and put all together. But at the end of the day for 
famous brands of gin as well as famous liqueurs, like it's the brand, it now becomes more important at some point. And it doesn't matter if yours tastes exactly like Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has got you know signs in every shop in the world and they're going to outsell your imitation product. Yeah, we're going to come back to that too. Um, have they found any old bottles to see if the recipes changed even secretly? Uh, Oh, yeah. That's a big thing with um, spirits nerds right now is to collect old bottles of anything, anything old you can find, basically. Uh, chartreuse is a particular cult obsession. You can go to restaurants. I live in San Francisco. There's one that has uh, for a one ounce pour of a chartreuse made in Tarragonia, Spain in the late 1800s. And it's like $1,200 for that one ounce pour, for wow. example, so that you can experience it historically. And for some ingredients and th these aren't always botanical liqueurs people are obsessed with trying the original form so the original rum used in a mai tai created in 1944 was a 17 year old jamaican rum and any tiki nerd will know this history by heart uh there were a few bottles of it remaining in the world and they were distributed to some collectors and for a while, there was one bar in Northern Ireland selling a Mai Tai with the re <laughs> a remaining bottle of that rum. And I think it was a $1,500 Mai Tai. And like, yeah, I would have done it. I would have absolutely flown to Ireland and bought the $1,500 Mai Tai to know what the original Mai Tai tasted like. It's uh, tasting a moment in time, like a, a magical experience, which you could never be created once that bottle was emptied, which now it is. So I missed I, my chance there. Yeah, I hate to be a skeptic, but you can never know if that's really what you're drinking anyway. I mean, I know, really. I think it was one of the, um, you know, the Coke brothers who, you know, um, you know, those billionaires who own the Coke industries and he was suing someone for selling him. It was probably like bottles of wine from Thomas Jefferson's collection. Um, but he got duped and, um, they're able to either, I don't know, carbon dating or, you know, something that was off of the label. It was, they were fake. And he'd paid, of course, ungodly sums of money for this stuff. So I imagine that the temptation to maybe water that down or <laughs> keep that bottle lasting forever is, is pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, there was a whole thing with uh, absinthe fakes from the, the pre-ban of absinthe in, in the early 1900s that people were selling a black market absinthe that was supposedly authentic, but it was just an old bottle refilled with something. And that was a big, that was a big to do in the absinthe community. When someone got busted, it turns out they'd been selling uh, counterfeit absinthe. Hey, before I forget this, and I don't remember even, you may touch this in the book, so you may not know, but I'm thinking about religions and cultures that prohibit alcohol consumption, like, like Islam. Do we know, again, you may not know the answer to this, but how that affected, you know, rates of, uh, you know, cholera or dysentery or other things because they weren't using alcohol the way, say, the Europeans were using it to, to disinfect water? Well, I did uh, touch upon the use of wine in, yeah. in Islam in the Islamic golden era of roughly 700 to 1200 because, uh, and, and not so much on whether people were sicker or not, which is an interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that um, offhand, but when wine was consumed or when it was agreed upon fully that alcohol in general should not be consumed versus just being drunk or versus just versus date wine, depending on your interpretation of uh, Muhammad's decrees. And uh, we saw, we saw the, that, that change, but people in this era were distilling and distilling a lot of rose water and famously uh, making both 
perfumes and food flavorings and medicines through distillation in the Islamic golden era. And we they mentioned that you can distill wine in this way and it comes out the same color as rose water, meaning it was mostly clear starting from something that was probably red and significant, but they didn't go further than that on it. Perhaps because uh, people weren't drinking wine or as much depending on the time in that era. And it wasn't until after that era in Europe around the year 1200 that we find the physician distillers saying, wow, if you put wine in the still, you can get this amazing stuff out of it. This uh, water of life, it's so good for you. It's the water of life and uh, <laughs> making a really big deal out of it, which we didn't see we, just like one mention of distilling wine in the Islamic golden era, but uh, probably the distillation technology uh, and understanding wasn't quite there yet as well. The, the stills would be better and you can make the separation between the alcohol and the water even though there wasn't a concept of that, of, of there being wine being made of alcohol and water, and, and, like beer was also. So it was a, a momentous discovery when people finally did distill the wine to get the condensed alcohol out of it. Yeah, I, I knew so little about the distillation process. So you were describing it in pretty good detail, but I did a Google image search, of course, and um, what comes up obviously is Amazon links, like any search you do these days. And you can actually very cheaply get these kits on Amazon. And obviously there's a demand for this today, even doing, uh, I guess, essential oils and some of the other things that people do for fun. But um, that technology is pretty accessible where it used to be pretty locked down for most of history. So uh, there's still a, still a great interest in this. Yeah, it's hard to do uh, yourself if you're just doing it with a handmade still. It's not, it's not impossible. To, because particularly we know what's happening exactly now, but now you can buy an all-in-one thing that looks like a thermos that's a still because there's the the condenser that cools down the vapors mm. in in the lid of it. I actually bought one after I had finished the book to do some experiments, not in distilling alcohol, which is one illegal, um, and uh, uh, also you you can buy it and it's cheap, and you don't need to make your you don't need to distill your own alcohol at home. <laughs> Like, you know, Smirnoff vodka doesn't cost that much. Just just go buy the, the product. It's going to be better than, and you're not going to poison yourself with methanol. <laughs> um, <laughs> Blow up your kitchen or something. But I but I was recreating some of the old uh, recipes for non-alcoholic water, distilled waters, as they were called, which were the medicines before alcoholic medicines. So juniper water and wormwood water and things like that. And seeing what happens when I put them in the still. And it was uh, some really interesting experiments. Uh, I made the smelliest anise water uh, that was so strong, it actually melted the plastic on the receiving <laughs> uh, jar I had when the, those essential oils were so concentrated. And then it remained smelling like anise for months and months. I, it could not get it out. I'm like, wow, that, that was really intense perfume that I had just made wow. in, in my little water still. Amazing. Hey, I want, still talking about these monks here. I, I want to read this quote here. This is from the rule of St. Benedict. Um, it's a quote, we read that monks should not drink wine at all, but since the monks of our day cannot be convinced of this, let us at least <laughs> agree to drink moderately and not to the point of excess, for wine makes uh, wise men go astray. So I find that really revealing. You know, I, I got to imagine some of these monks were, I mean, especially when no one's watching, you know, it, it's, it's like, I don't know, Sunday fun day or something over there. <laughs> um, but it, it does bring out the question again, you know, the alcohol consumption throughout the day, you know, if you're a peasant working in the fields, I mean, you're not 
operating heavy machinery, but there's still huge mistakes can be made and sharp objects and all of this. Um, do you think early on there were, there were prohibitions against getting, you know, too intoxicated and how, you know, you mentioned earlier the alcohol content was probably lower, but there's going to be people who experiment and make it higher. Um, what do we know about, let's say in the middle ages about excess alcohol consumption? Well, we definitely see the, the lower ABV, the beer in particular, we know if it was high ABV or low because sugar could be added to raise the ABV. And that was a later mil middle ages sort of improvement to the, to the beer and wine in the Greek and Roman era before it was typically consumed uh, with mixed with water. And we could, we know in today that that would purify the water that may have been full of bacteria or whatever. But um, also people were just used to really low ABV drinking in general. Um, and then when distilled spirits came along, even when that first distillation may have raised the ABV up only to 20 or 30% alcohol, people were like, yikes, <laughs> that stuff is strong. <laughs> and uh, would really comment on, on that, like how wildly strong it was. You could tell that they were not drinking things anywhere near that strength in, in ABV. Um, the prohibitions against drunkenness sort of they, they happen all throughout time, uh, throughout, throughout the world. And it's usually specifically against drunkenness. Now, once distilled spirits come into the picture, there are, um, there are more need for more prohibitions on it. At first, they're like, stop drinking all the medicine. We need that for medicine because <laughs> distilled spirits were only created as medicine and became recreational over hundreds of years. They were not distilled to make beverages in any way. And I think that's something I hadn't realized. I thought it's like, oh, whiskey, you could use that, you know, to sterilize a wound or numb the pain. Like alcohol is uh, useful in the practice of medicine, but it's a beverage. However, by writing this book, I learned that no uh, distilled alcohol was created as a medicine that turns out we just like drinking for its other impacts. It was really the opposite of what I had believed my whole life about it. Huh. <laughs> We're, it's it's medicine we drink it's not a drink that we use as medicine today it's it's the opposite of yeah. course but um, <laughs> but that's how it was developed although i'm sure some people still make excuses out there for... <laughs> yeah. oh yeah it's like oh i've got glaucoma like let's spark up a joint it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> similar like you know, oh yeah. a glass a day um, that's what they said I, I haven't read anything contrary so yeah exactly i I've always been fascinated by the um, the British Navy and um, their rum uh, rations. And then, of course, in order to make sure that the Navy got their uh, citrus to prevent scurvy, they put it in rums in the form of grog. Is that correct? And so it just uh, I'm wondering how, you know, how functional you could be. It look it sounds like a big ration over the course of a day. And, uh, you know, you're on a ship with a lot of people who are drinking a lot of rum who don't have scurvy now because they've had <laughs> um, any idea what that was like. I mean, it's, I know there were actually um, uh, mutinies because people didn't get their rum rations. But yeah, so in any kind of military setting throughout all of history, there was a big need for alcohol. And uh, in the case of ships, it was usually 
two times a day, there was a ration issued. So everyone would line up and you'd get one scoop of rum, say. But it wasn't always rum, uh, depending on where the ship left. So mm -hmm. ships leaving from England tended to carry gin. When they got to the Caribbean, tend to resupply with rum. So it was really important for there to be a local distilled spirit produced anywhere that ships went. Now, on mainland Europe, the ships from England and Holland they would pick up the fortified wines. So we owe the presence of things like Port and Sherry and Madeira. The fact that those are all fortified higher in strength than you would get just from fermentation is because they had to last longer on ships, particularly in hot oh, weather where right. that wine would spoil. They're purely the product of people from other countries needing to transport it. And that, it's, it's odd that uh, informs so much of what we drink today was created specifically to last longer on ships. And so those would be also put onto the ships for daily rations. Beer was part of a daily rations, but beer and wine are going to spoil, particularly in these hot climates, a lot faster than mm -hmm. distilled spirits. So it was more practical that you'd have something like a more condensed alcoholic product uh, on board. The scurvy after the after the 1700s, um, the citrus being finally discovered as the cure and preventative for that. And then naturally you would mix it with rum because, you know, lime juice on its own is not all that tasty. Um, you really uh, need Especially to Especially compared some... to rum. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you put that together with your rum and then you need something to balance out all that acidity. Let's add some sugar. That is a daiquiri. And uh, essentially people were drinking the original daiquiri on board ships. So we're going to get on the time before I, I realize it here. So I want to make sure I get it. We'll jump ahead and maybe we'll come back. But talking about prohibition, there's been, as you mentioned, various attempts throughout history. But if we look at prohibition here in the U.S., like I remember... Uh, I've always been a huge fan of Harry Truman, but he would every morning get up, have an exercise, take a shower, and then have a, a shot of whiskey. And that's how he would get his day going, even as president. So that, now we're talking into the you know 40s and 50s. People still at that point even looked at it as medicinal. I don't think he was doing that just because he wanted a quick buzz in the morning. It was, there was a reason he was doing it. What When Prohibition started, how many people still viewed alcohol as medicinal and I understand you could, there are other ways you could have even get alcohol besides the, you know, you know, moonshine or getting it snuck in, you get it, you could get it with a prescription. What, what was the attitude like as far as medicine and alcohol when prohibition started? Well, a lot of things came together to give us prohibition and a lot of it had to do with prohibiting bad drinking habits in saloons rather than prohibiting drinking alcohol, but things got a little bit convoluted. So there were cases of, you know, the, the men after work spending all the money that they had earned for the day in the saloon and not making it home with any money left to take care of their family. And from a government's perspective, they were not considered people who should probably be trusted to vote reasonably if they were drunkards. And so there was social pressure against uh, consuming alcohol, particularly in saloons and particularly high proof distilled alcohol. A lot of people thought when they supported prohibition that that was prohibition only on distilled spirits and not mm. on beer and wine. And we're surprised to learn when the Volstead Act comes into uh, enforcement that now beer and wine are also illegal. And they weren't aware that was part of the deal. Historically, we find a lot of 
cases of in the, in the absinthe craze and in the gin craze over in different times and places that people say, oh, this person's an alcoholic. We're going to prescribe for you wine or beer. That was the cure for alcoholism, it was thought, was just these lower ABV products because spirits were considered so much more extreme, I guess, as far as, as intoxicants. Now, the, the morning dram that people would drink, that goes back to the earliest days of alcohol and medicine. In the, say, I think the 1500s in Germany, we find that was just like, oh, you have a little bit of spirit every day, and it's going to help you live longer and more healthy. When cocktails come into the equation, this is now in the, the middle to late 1800s, the old fashioned, the original cocktail itself, it's spirit, sugar, water, and bitters. Importantly, bitters are a, a stomach soothing um, concoction. That was a morning drink consumed without ice because ice didn't come into play until after the 1830s. Mm. And it had the bitters to soothe your stomach from the night's previous night's drinking, as well as to set you on your way for the day. It was like having an energy drink in the morning. Um, that's what your morning cocktail or glass of whiskey was throughout a lot of history. And so, so now we get to prohibition and uh, that's gone for a lot of people. You can get a prescription, as, as you mentioned, for alcohol and that alcohol wouldn't have to be whiskey, although that was the most common. You, the prescription would be for any alcohol and depending on what your pharmacist was carrying, you might end up with cognac or rum or whiskey. And those were usually limited. So it was reducing drinking. Certainly you would get a pint a week, but your veterinarian could also prescribe. So <laughs> you might have a, a very sick dog uh, <laughs> in addition <laughs> to your, your own issues. And much like today with a lot of cannabis legislation, there's sort of, if you want to go through the expense and effort, you can get around some of the, uh, the, the limits on the amount that you're supposed to consume in a, in a day. So, so that was the case throughout, well, all of prohibition and prohibition was also about enforcement. Some municipalities just never enforced prohibition. It was not a thing. <laughs> you could, everyone could drink. It wasn't a problem. We just hear about the, the gangsters and the federal agents and, and all of that drama. Whereas I don't get the impression that it was like that everywhere and that there were places that prohibition didn't impact much at all. And there were a lot of places that passed prohibition long before national prohibition or kept it long, long after, after prohibition yeah. was, was yeah. repealed. So right. there were a lot of people who were just not generally interested in it the whole time or, or longer before and longer after. It, it turns out prohibition is a far more, I think, nuanced and interesting issue um, than we tend to hear about from movies and TV and stuff. Yeah, it's very true. I, so I went to college at Appalachian State, and it's a big weekend for them. They had college game day show up this this weekend. So uh, for a school that no one's ever heard of, they're, they're finally getting on the map a little more. But when I was there, which was a long time ago, early 2000s, uh, uh, there's some there's alumni weekend, and yeah, I ran into somebody who told me the whole history there that used to not be able to get alcohol at all in that particular county. So this would be the mountains in North Carolina. And they it was up for a vote. And they, of course, put the, you know, the referendum vote during spring break of, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, when the kids were going to be out. And as soon as that happened, the chancellor said, OK, you know, if you're going to do that, I'm moving spring break. And that was the only way they were able to end prohibition in that county, which is <laughs> really, you know, probably, the, I don't know, 1980s or something. It wasn't that long ago. So you're right. It, it is. It, it's not uniform. And even today, there's probably, I'm sure there's counties around the country that are still, you know, pretty dry. 
Oh, they're legally dry. Yeah, there's still plenty of parts of the yeah. United States. Yeah, there are a bunch down here in Texas. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be really careful because there are also laws against buying in one thing and bringing it into your town. So yeah, that's so. Um, we we heard about and you talk a lot about sort of the the um, alcohol replacements, the things people did to try to get alcohol during prohibition. Um, I don't recall if there's a section about bathtub gin. Do you mention that? But I'm I'm very curious as to what bathtub gin is, because I don't see how you could make gin in a bathtub. What 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 really was bathtub gin? Well, I believe bathtub gin is more about taking alcohol from whatever source you could find it and then flavoring it with turpentine or juniper oil oh, in, in, in the bathtub rather than fermenting and distilling there. Uh, I learned from this book, a lot of the the alcohol produced was, well, it either come from abroad and it was just neutral alcohol, unaged. To have aged whiskey was was quite rare, but not necessarily a great distillation in the first place. So you might want to cover up that flavoring to make it gin. So you add juniper oil to it. Or there was a lot of uh, denatured alcohol that the mobs would renature uh, to make it. Huh safe to drink or make it taste safe to drink, even if it wasn't necessarily. There's a lot of people who died from poison alcohol during right. prohibition for this stuff that was not safe to drink. There was methanol in it from its creation or to try to get the government's denaturing agents back out by uh, redistilling it or uh, filtering it in different ways. And that was also a, an interesting part that I didn't know about. So I think I called the, the chapter on prohibition poison because it was yes. really about poisoning of alcohol before American regulations con controlled it to make sure it was safe. And then shortly thereafter, prohibition, which caused a lot of more poison alcohol to come onto the market than there had been only 20 years before. Yeah, and including officially poisoned alcohol too, right? The government had a hand in that. They sure did. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're getting closer to the time here. So um, a few more questions in here. One about, um, and we're going to fast forward a little bit, but you have, you've had some work in safe cocktails today, like even today, especially as uh, bartenders are trying to create all of their own ingredients from scratch, looking in some cases to ancient wisdom from some of these, uh, you know, bartending guides from, you know, 150 years ago. What's that all about? Um, what, what, what are some of the risks coming up right now and, and how is that being managed? Well, there, people are being creative, which is, which is great, and trying to make homemade ingredients, which also often makes better quality ingredients. For example, the cherry red grenadine that you buy in most stores is, has no remnants of pomegranate flavor. It's red sugar water for the most part. But if you wanted to create a more historically accurate, authentic grenadine, you might make it yourself. So in that same mindset, people are making, say, homemade tonic water uh, from the cinchona bark that it comes from. Well, that is a, uh, the quinine is regulated because too much will uh, give you terrible problems. It can, it can actually kill you, although that takes a lot. But people are going back to the bark and they may not know how much quinine is per ounce of bark or whatever and making a recipe. So, I'm, so I started a website called Cocktail Safe that was, the goal is to provide a reference for bartenders to be like, hey, watch out when you use this ingredient or don't use this ingredient in the case of tobacco, because there's 
a lot of flavor synergies with tobacco and whiskey in particular um, that tobacco notes are common and it's not because there's tobacco in whiskey it's because uh, that's the flavor between grains and wood often reminds us of um, of tobacco and people bartenders started to make tobacco bitters or tobacco flavoring and tobacco is super, super poisonous and uh, should never be infused into alcohol, never served in anybody's drink. And at very small amounts can have uh, dangerous impacts uh, on drinkers, particularly if they're people at a bar who didn't necessarily know what they're ordering may have been a homemade ingredient and, and not regulated. Uh, I know people who've had um, heart palpitations after having some uh, mm. bartenders homemade tobacco bitters or the bartenders wow. themselves is usually who who's doing it. It's like when you're experimenting and tasting on a recipe at home, you're having a lot of it. And so <laughs> people who are messing around with homemade tonic water and tobacco bitters tend to be like, oh, no, what have I done? And uh, giving themselves some uh, temporary, as far as I know, uh, conditions of uh sort of a, a mini overdoses and then you know, learn the hard way that they should probably avoid using those ingredients. And that includes everything from those homemade syrups and stuff to things like uh, Instagrammers putting beautiful flowers that they picked out of the forest <laughs> without knowing what it was <laughs> yeah. into their cocktails and be like, oh, so that's poison oak. You know, you, <laughs> oh, please man. do not drink that. Um, and uh, uh, other substances like that, that we sort of had to say for the record, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. Um, you know, poison ivy is natural. It's organic, but who wouldn't want to eat it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I said earlier, I really enjoyed this book. And um, one of the funny things you do here is you have sprinkled throughout the book different cocktail recipes. And this is one, today is the 19th. So today was uh, Queen Elizabeth's, the final end of her uh, what week-long funeral that we've been all seeing on TV. And um, so if you go to page 143 here, you can actually see what her favorite uh, aperitif was, which it's hard to imagine her actually drinking at all, but I guess just like everyone, she has a, a separate life from the one we always saw. But I'm curious in all the, you know, you mentioned there's some interesting things you've seen before in some of these bartending manuals, but in all your research, did you come up with something that just, you just had no idea about or a drink that you had no idea about that, you know, just just came across your way. Uh, a lot of the medicinal drinks I had no idea took place and that people were taking arsenic as like a pick me up and mercury cures, uh, particularly for syphilis. Oh, and well, syphilis gets you a whole bunch of wild stuff. Um, everything in root beer, the original root beer recipes was thought to be a syphilis cure for the most part. <laughs> uh, sassafras and sarsaparilla were, were two of the notable supposed cures for syphilis. A lot of the medicines in the book went away when uh, antibiotics came into the picture and uh, that's for the best. And a lot of times the the alcohol that was in medicines was the thing soothing the issue rather than the botanical soaked into the alcohol. And today we have a lot better options to use instead of those alcohol-based cures. But it was interesting to see, like a lot of stuff may have worked a little bit, but today <laughs> we have a lot of better options for medicine. Mm -hmm. So I always say, if you're, you know, if you're feeling sick, you go to the doctor. If you're want to drink, you go to the bartender and you don't confuse one for the other. Like right. doctors are make notably horrible cocktails. <laughs> hey, hey, wait a minute. You know, um, so I was um, 
fascinated by the book uh, too because of the of the trajectory of everything. And and I wonder if you can comment what it says about human beings in general that um, we started looking at a lot of these materials with alchemy and for these these grand ideas like we're going to cure, we're going to find the essence of life. And then they become medicine and they're, and we're treating um, health care and then they morph into recreational things. Is that, you know, is that a, a typical human thing that we will try something for a grand thing and then do it for a human thing and then do it for fun? Oh, yeah. I, I think that uh, a lot of technology in the world ends up following similar paths. This is going to change everything. You know, this is so solar power. Like now we have like, flashlights or calculators that work on solar power. And hopefully in the future, the great promise of solar power will uh, power the world again. But you, you hear the promise and then reality is a little tougher than expected. And then, well, let's, you know, get a little bit of joy out of this thing. And I, that's alcohol and, and a lot of other things throughout history. I also think it's interesting how where all the knowledge from what we learned between the ancient Greeks and today and the technology changes between then are, are momentous. But what we know about human nature and what we know about the human body are actually have not changed all that much in, in mm -hmm. all those years that we we come far and then we still you know, past prohibition on how people may use their own human body. And we uh, think we know, we know a lot more about medicine, but we don't know very much. We know as much about the human body as, you know, the deepest depths of the ocean and, and outer space. We know more about outer space than we know a lot about the human body. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's wild that we, you know, are these complicated machines, organic machines, and we understand ourselves less than we understand a lot of the world and math and physics. And I think that's a pretty amazing how we, we see technology and human knowledge widely expand, whereas uh, knowledge of ourselves changes at a much slower pace. No, you're exactly right. I mean, Queen Elizabeth, why did she live to 96? And two days before she died, she was still you know, welcoming in the new prime minister. I mean, I want to know what the secret sauce is there because I want to be able to do the same thing, but we really don't know. <laughs> we don't. We don't know if it was the Dubonnet cocktail. Uh, or... <laughs> I'm the, well, it, I'm like, it clearly is. I'm, I'm I can certainly. I can me. certainly try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we are definitely up at the time, Camper. Uh, first of all, thanks again for uh, for jumping on with us and and for adjusting the schedule today. We had a little last minute change, so much appreciated. But tell everybody listening where they can find the book and more about you and some of the other things we talked about, point them in the right direction. Sure. The book is called Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits, and Cocktails. Um, it's about the combination of history of alcohol and medicine throughout all time. My web, You can find that in bookstores or online at your favorite online retailer, or you can support your independent bookshop. However, um, uh, my main website is alcademics.com, just like academics, but sticking L for alcohol in there. And uh, that links to my other websites, Cocktail Safe for the safety that we talk about, as well as I have one about environmental uses of cocktail ingredients. But academics will get you 90% of the way there. Perfect. We'll put links up to that on the website, as we always do. And Camper, thanks again for joining us. That was a lot of fun today. I just wish it was like, we should have done this on a Friday afternoon so I could have had a drink yes, while we we're doing try. this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <next> time. <laughs> Just a, a little scheduling error there. But um, but yeah, really enjoyed it. And um, everyone listening, 
whenever, wherever you're listening. Take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.